Glenwood South's newest saloon, the Raleigh Beer Garden, opened its doors July 20th and is home to more beers on tap than anywhere else on earth. The 8,500-square-foot, three-story garden boasts a world-record-breaking 366 craft beers on tap, 144 of which come straight from North Carolina breweries. Frank Bloom, director of marketing and events, said, We have been excited to see everyone come out the first week and experience the garden for the first time. In addition to serving craft beer, the Raleigh Beer Garden tacks on Spiritual, a high-end cocktail bar featuring rare and locally distilled spirits, as well as thin-crust pizzas, homemade sausages, and gourmet salads. The garden's interior space can accompany 400 or so patrons. Outside, between the patios, rooftop space, and back garden, there are an additional 50 tables for guests to choose from, according to Bloom. Bloom said, We are going through so much beer now. We have already kicked 400 kegs. Bloom also said that thanks to the initial popularity of the beer garden, he is not worried about the beers becoming stale. The beer is poured through taps on the restaurant's wall that feed directly into coolers. The short draw system helps keep the beer from becoming trapped within the lines and potentially becoming stale. Bloom said, We have people constantly monitoring the life of the kegs, the cleanliness of the tap lines, and the system itself. In addition to showing up in the beer selection, North Carolina is also honored throughout the design of the building. The bar's countertops and tables are all made from pecan trees that were found on the property prior to the construction of the Raleigh Beer Garden. The inside of the building also features a reconstructed 40-foot pecan tree from a farm in Creedmoor, North Carolina. Currently, the Raleigh Beer Garden is open from 11 a.m. until 2 a.m. daily. However, shortly after its initial opening, the garden curtailed their lunchtime hours to address a number of concerns expressed by patrons. Bloom said, we were working on a few tweaks to the system to make sure that the experience everyone has is better and better each time. We are inventing an entire new way of doing things since we are housing the world's largest draft system in one spot. Bloom said that beating the world record for the most beers on tap wasn't necessarily the goal of the Raleigh Beer Garden. Bloom said, once we started creeping up on the number with the initial design of the draft beer system, Niall Hanley, the owner of the Raleigh Beer Garden, said why not, so we went for it. While 366 is an impressive number, Hanley told the Con Nash Traveler that it's just the beginning of the garden. Hanley said, We actually have another cooler, so we're probably going to add another 20 or so taps upstairs. Eventually, we could be just under 400. Today, we're going to be talking about the renovations that are taking place currently at Carmichael Gym. I have with me Jason Spivey, the Associate Director of University Recreation, who is leading the project. Jason, how are you? Ah, doing well. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, of course. Did you just come from work now, and is there a lot of work to be done? Yeah, I actually just walked over from Carmichael Gym, and uh, this morning took a walk through the space and just seeing what all is happening, and lots of demo and lots of, uh, you know, sledgehammers banging and, uh, you know, tools being slung around, just breaking down walls and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. So when did this project begin, and how long have you been planning it for? Yeah, so construction, we actually just started demo about three weeks ago, but we've been in the process of planning for well over a year, just trying to get all the pieces in place and making sure we're getting out of that project what we really want to get. Um, and, and we anticipate it going for, you know, really impacting us in the, in the fall semester and, and hopefully turning something really cool back over to the students that they'll really appreciate and enjoy being a part of. Heck yeah, of course. So why are these renovations taking place? How did this project come about? Yeah, so, I mean, Carmichael Gym, as many people probably know, was built in 1961. And, you know, unfortunately, particularly in the locker room areas, we really haven't impacted those since 1961. And so I think 
as we try to keep up with uh, what students that attend NC State expect and, and should deserve. You know, it's time for us to really get in there and, and make better space. And, uh, you know, one of the big challenges for us was just trying to open it up and make it more inviting. If you've ever been in Carmichael Gym, you know, there's just long, long corridors of space. And uh, it's really a chance for us to, to really clean it up, make it nice and new and, and uh, you know, really make it more inviting for, for everybody. Yeah, I know. Those long halls are like walking through some sort of old hospital or something. It's kind of creepy, to be honest. Yeah, and hopefully, hopefully we keep it as clean as a hospital. But you know, for sure, it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely long corridors in that space. So the gym is pretty big. Where exactly will the work be done? Yeah, so the work's actually being done in, in really the oldest part of the gym. Um, you know, where where most students would enter the main entrance to the facility. If you think about that space. And, and underneath courts one through eight, the basketball court. So if you think about underneath that, that's really where everything's being renovated at this time. Can you give us an overview as to the changes that will come out of the first half of this project, the locker room renovations? Yeah, so, you know, the, the project's really broken up into two phases, and really the intent behind that was for us to be able to, to maintain locker room access throughout the project. Um, and so in the first phase, um, the majority of locker rooms get get uh, demoed and, and rebuilt. We're going to add about 5,500 square feet of more fitness space, which is something we truly, truly need um, just to make sure that we have enough equipment and, uh, and areas for students to work out and exercise in. Um, we're also going to open corridor space and just make the, the, the space more inviting and easier to navigate. Um, we're going to address some code issues in the building of just egress and making sure that if we had it, something happened there, people can get out safely. Um and then a lot of just mechanical stuff, kind of the, the dirty things behind the scenes, but making sure that the the air handling units and plumbing issues we have in the building and things like that are all getting repaired in that first phase. Okay, yeah, definitely, especially about the um, the code issue. That's right. We want to make sure it's safe, right? We want to make sure that we're, we're keeping up with what needs to happen. All right, so what will the other half of the project, which I think you already sort of addressed, the fitness center expansion project, what will that add or change? Yeah, so really, so really, we think about it all as really one big project. So in the first phase, we'll actually add the new fitness center space. And then the second phase really just goes in and demos those temporary locker room spaces that we were keeping open to maintain access throughout the first phase. So, yeah, so it's really all one big project all lumped together. And, you know, the locker room and fitness center expansion. The second phase is really just updating those locker spaces we had available during the first phase. What kind of new equipment and tech will there be once everything is complete in the new fitness center? Yeah, so I think some of the coolest things we'll add is, uh, you know, fitness cardio pieces will have will have personal viewing screens on them. So, you know, instead of like the traditional big TVs at the top of like a fitness room, you'll be able to go in and just plug in right on the machine you're working on and either watch a TV program or whatever or, you know, do some surfing on the Internet or something like that if you choose to. I'm not sure how you surf the Internet and, you know, run on a treadmill at the same time, but <laughs> somehow it happens. Uh, so we're going to have that in there, and then we're also going to bring a lot more functional training stuff in. So it won't be CrossFit, but, you know, that kind of trend that's in the fitness industry now and just trying to provide opportunities for folks to, to come in and just do some exercises and routines like that with some of the new equipment that comes in, which would be kind of cool. Very different than just the traditional weights and cardio pieces. Okay, so you've got some body weight equipment? Absolutely, yeah, very much body weight kind of stuff. But it's very purposeful, which will be really cool. How will students' gym experience be affected during this process? I know you said they'll still have locker access. What else? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest impact is just navigating the facility. So during the project, the main entrance um, is shut down um, during phase one. And so right now we're, we're, we're entering the building through the aquatic center. Um, and so really 
that's that's one of the biggest impacts. I think um, we do lose some small fitness spaces that were that were kind of up front by the new entrance um, during the project. But uh, we've got plenty of other fitness space open. You know, the third floor of the rec center, thirteen hundred eight, thirteen hundred nine, which are down in the nineteen eighty seven portion of the building, um, will all stay open and accessible throughout the project. So um, we are maintaining locker room access, like we've talked about. So I think from that impact, it really should be pretty minimal. I mean, it's going to be a little cramped and a little tight. But uh, if we can bear with it for, for six months or so, I think once we get there, it's going to be a, a well-received renovation. Yeah, it'll definitely be worth the wait. <laughs> Absolutely. Could you explain maybe how this is being funded? And will there be some sort of student or non-student fee increase? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it, is, it is student fee funded. Um, and the funding was actually approved um, a couple of years ago. So we went through the whole fee review process. Um, and, and I think we've done a really nice job of, of just laying out projects that, that we feel we need to address at Carmichael to make sure that our rec center is up to the par um, and standards that the students of NC State really want to have. And so, um, you know, we've, we've gone through and been able to propose all that and show what we're thinking about doing and, and why we're trying to get it done. And, and it's been very well received. And so, yeah, so it is a student fee funded project and uh, there should be no new increases with this project. OK, so it's just going off of whatever we're already paying anyways. That's right. That's right. Okay, that's cool. All right. What would you say is the most interesting change or update? This renovation. If you if you were in there before and you come and see it now, you're going to be wild. Which actually moves on to my next question. NC State's been wowing students recently. I mean, Hunt was a huge project. They just completed New Tally. Was all this construction coincidental, or did State just really need an overhaul? Uh, I, I mean, I think some of both, honestly, I think that it's coincidental that they've happened in, in the time where they've happened, but there's also planning that happens just to make sure that, you know, the university can support this amount of construction as well as the students, you know, we don't want to throw, you know, a hundred projects on and, and just, you know, burden students with that and, or the university. And so I think it, it's very well planned out and structured. Um, and, and again, I do think that, I mean, the university is, it's, we've got a lot of history here at NC state. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of buildings and a lot of structures. And, and, you know, sometime you have to come in and just make some changes to make improvements and really continue to attract students and, and give students that are at campus, you know, really the facilities they deserve. And so I think some of both. Okay, so a little of both. I can't complain, though. The updates look great. And I know myself and a lot of other students really love them. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, we're going to continue to try to make it better. And, you know, again, I think it's just trying to, to be the best that we can be at NC State and for the NC State community. As far as I can understand, this is the second part of the overall recreational sports master plan for renovations. What was the first? Yeah, so the first part was really just um, just the front center entrance. Um, you know, before it, we talked about these long corridors in Carmichael Gym, well, that corridor came all the way to the front of the building. It was a really non-inviting space for students to come to the facility. And so the first project just opened up that corridor space. It provided, you know, some additional 4,000 square feet of, of fitness area. And then, uh, you know, just, again, a more welcoming lobby and portal entrance to the building. So it was a small little quick hitter. Um, this is the second big project and, and really just trying to expand uh, the locker rooms and add more fitness center space and update that area. So that's number two. That's number two. So what more is to come in the future? Yeah, so I think the next big one for us that we're really excited about is, is, is the East Wing renovation. One of our final chances to really make Carmichael Gym right. It's really being driven and led by students. We, we've, we've done a lot of work to try to get student input and student feedback on what this process should look like. And, and you know, really us as University Recreation are just the keepers of data to say, hey, here's what the demand says we need. 
and here's how we feel we can achieve it. And our hope is as we go through this process, be able to provide students with just multiple options of, of here's how we think we can achieve it and here's what it's going to cost us at the end of the day. And really let students tell us what they want because that's what we're here to do is provide space that students want, not necessarily what we think we need. Okay, so a true student democracy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so when will that occur? Yeah, so, uh, so we're actually in the process of going through um, the fee request now. Um, and then hopefully if, if everything goes well, we should be able to provide some options for students, you know, within the next year. And then, you know, so we're looking probably three or four years out before we really start to see some construction going on, maybe a little sooner if we can, if we can get moving. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we're really excited to, to get some options like that out to students and let them give us some feedback and, and see how we can really expand and make Carmichael Gym really a true one facility rec center, you know. Yeah. Wow. That was actually closer than I thought it would be. But in the meantime, when will this project be completed? Yeah, so we're, we're anticipating this project should last us about six months. So um, if everything continues to go as planned, we're hoping that we're going to be able to turn over phase one and open that whole space back up sometime late in the fall semester, you know, November, maybe maybe early December before we leave for winter holiday. And then hopefully we're going to flip phase two and, and be done with that sometime late January, early February of 2016. So um, really a, a short a short term impact if, if everybody can hang in there with us and, and, and help us. Uh, you know, just be flexible and navigate in the building and some of the banging and loud noises we'll hear. But, you know, like I say, a quick project really in the grand scheme of things. All right. I'm excited for when it's all completed. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for coming down, Jason. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. For more information, you can check out the University Recreation website and search for the Locker Room Renovation Project. My name is Kevin Kronk, and this has been Eye in the Triangle. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC-FM Raleigh. For the community calendar this week, we have the annual 9-11 Day of Service coordinated by Activate Good with support from the City of Raleigh, the Downtown Raleigh Alliance, and local businesses. On Friday, September 11th, businesses, groups, and individuals will honor those lost on 9-11 with volunteerism and acts of kindness around the Triangle. Service projects include refurbishing schools, packaging food for those in need, and will benefit over 40 causes. An evening commemoration will conclude the day of service at the Red Hat Amphitheater. You can visit activategood.org to register to volunteer. Volunteers must register for the service project of their choice by September 10th at activategood.org-911 day of service 2015. The Entrepreneurship Initiative is hosting the first annual Entrepalooza, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Festival. The purpose of the event is to expose students, both new and returning, to the variety of entrepreneurship and innovation opportunities and programs at NC State. You can talk to organizers and participants on Thursday, September 3rd from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the Oval on Centennial Campus. This week is Wolfpack Welcome Week, with almost 100 events and activities taking place from August 14th to August 22nd. Some of the events and activities include... The Welcome Backpack Dinner, Wednesday the 19th from 4.30 until 8.30 at the Fountain and Clark Dining Halls. The WKNC DJ Interest Meeting, Wednesday and Thursday from 6 until 7 p.m. at Witherspoon Student Center, room 356. NC State's student radio station, WKNC offers volunteer positions in radio announcing, production, programming, promotions, and engineering. Come to one of two interest meetings to get a volunteer application and learn about becoming involved in student radio. There will be open auditions for Fiddler on the Roof Friday from 7 until 10 p.m. at the Frank Thompson Hall. 
The sixth annual NC State Blood Drive will be Saturday, 8 a.m. until 7 p.m. at Carmichael Gym, courts 9 through 11. You can donate blood and save lives during the sixth annual NC State Blood Drive. Volunteer opportunities are also available. Visit the CSLEPS website for more details at go.ncsu.edu-service-nc-state-blood-drive. And finally, Packapalooza on Hillsborough Street, Saturday from 2 p.m. until 10 p.m. Packapalooza is an all-day block party and street festival, capping off Wolfpack Welcome Week at the start of the academic year. You can find more events on the Wolfpack Welcome Week 2015 smartphone guide. That's all for this week. I'm Connor Kennedy for Eye on the Triangle. Thank you, Connor. And for submissions for Eye on the Triangle's community calendar, please send an email to publicaffairs at wknc.org. I know that you have been continuing to work on, on growing national parks and conserving land. How much have you been able to conserve? Good question. I was able to speak with Jay Erskine Lutz, the author of Stand Up That Mountain, a book about land conservation in the face of environmental degradation. Ravi Chitila, former editor-in-chief of The Technician, and Eliza Eishart with the Agromech were also on the student media panel. Lutz has served as trustee and secretary for the Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy to continue growing public lands. There are 23 land trusts in North Carolina, plus the Nature Conservancy, the Trust for Public Land, and the Conservation Fund. Those are sort of the big conservation organizations. So my land trust, Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy, has protected 68,000 acres of land over 40 years. The Nature Conservancy statewide has protected 700,000 acres. Um, so you start to see the numbers are starting to add up. And if you take all of the conservation organizations together, we're really making an impact in the landscape at the landscape scale if you take North Carolina as a unit. Now, of course, North Carolina is a political unit with state boundaries that are artificially drawn. They don't follow ridge lines necessarily or watersheds. I think it would make a lot more sense to have our states um, you know, be the state of the Noose River Basin um, or the state of the Watauga River drainage. Um, that's a more rational way to divide up resources into political boundaries, but we didn't do that. I understand that. But you have a lot of rivers that um, are born in North Carolina and then travel through South Carolina. They have problems. If all the folks in North Carolina want to use the water for agriculture, folks in South Carolina might be robbed of that resource. So how do you work out equity across political boundaries that don't really respect riverine boundaries um, and, and aquatic boundaries. So that's a, that's a challenge. Land conservation movement across the country has been enormously successful and powerful. And it's, uh, we don't have a whole lot of resources, but we enter voluntary agreements with landowners in the form of conservation easements. And then sometimes we buy land and uh, more land has been saved by land trusts over the last 10 years than has been converted by sprawl. So in the aggregate, the conservation community has had a real impact in the landscape. And without it, I think we would have poorer resource planning than we currently have. And that extends not only to protecting beautiful places where we like to hike and play and hunt and fish, it extends to the loss of farmland and our ability to feed ourselves in the future. North Carolina is number two in the country in loss of farmland over the last decade. You don't want to be high on that list. That's not one where you want to be number one. So we need to do a better job of protecting our soil resources if we want to be able to feed ourselves close to home in the future. 
So that's sort of a concrete conservation challenge that people who don't really relate to the climate challenge can maybe say, oh yeah, I eat food. Maybe it would be best for me to eat food that was grown locally. While the conservation movement has made net gains in the past 10 years, Ravi Chutila asked if the conservation effort has grown or shrank in recent years. It's a good question. I think that we are having an uneven impact because so much of it depends on funding. And what we saw starting in 2007 was a recession that hammered state budgets across the country. And what we see is a continuing pressure at the federal level on budgeting for land conservation. And we are falling behind our needs. If you take North Carolina as an example, North Carolina is adding about 100,000 new citizens every year. Those 100,000 people moving into North Carolina all want clean drinking water. They all want places to hike and um, recreate, ride mountain bikes and canoe. We have the same number of resources, which have more users. There was a very rational system in North Carolina established 20 years ago. When a real estate sale took place in the state, a portion of the deed stamp tax flowed into a trust fund that helped buy parkland and conservation land that helped offset the development of that property. Great system. Unfortunately, the General Assembly eliminated it. You can see that for students, I think engaging in a, in a multi-prong effort to protect this conservation funding, it's political, it's economic, it is ecologic. There, there's so many different ways you can come at our environmental and conservation challenges. And um, one of the clearest ways for a lot of people to understand is just money. Have less money, you can buy less land. The state and the federal government do have the authority in the Constitution to seize land for public uses. It's how our roads get built. Um, it's how airport runways get built. We take land from private citizens using eminent domain. And you can do that under the Constitution if it's a justifiable public use. Now, you have to pay for it. And sometimes the court sets how much is fair compensation, but it's very controversial. So we really stopped using it for creating conservation land, even though we know what could be a more public use than preserving life on Earth. Pretty grandiose idea, preserving yeah. land on Earth, but that's really the conservation challenge for the future, yet we're not using the power of eminent domain. We're using money to buy the priority conservation tracts. I'm okay with that approach, but we have to make sure that those funds exist when lands are available for purchase, or else we are gonna fall farther behind. So funding has decreased due to legislation in the General Assembly, and North Carolina has the second worst loss of farmland in the United States. And we have the tools to conserve even if we aren't using all of them. Jay Erskine-Lutz discusses one of the underused tools more. It's in the United States Constitution, okay. yes. Um, so goes under many names, eminent domain, seizure, and condemnation. So it's highly controversial, Otherwise and we don't use it anymore. <laughs> but uh, it comes up every once in a while if a landowner wants to sell their land to the Forest Service to add it to the forest, and the landowner thinks it's worth a million dollars, and the federal government thinks it's worth half a million dollars, they're a long way apart on money, you can use a friendly condemnation process to set the value of the land. As long as both parties agree to use that process to set the value, you're pretty good to go. Chatilla goes on to ask what Lutz's motivation to move into the mountains were. 
So I want to backtrack for a second. Um, so I understand you're from Chapel Hill originally. Yeah. So I guess you have the opposite story, where as a, like from small town guy goes to big city. Right. You went from like metropolitan area to right. uh, Avery County, right. for like to an extremely <laughs> rural area. Yeah. Can you um, talk a little about what, like what really drew you to that area, like your personal motivation? I mean, you've talked about beauty and conservation, but really, yeah. what, what drew you at? Uh, uh, you left your uh, law firm at like 24 or something? So I left Boston, where I was actually working for a book selling company. So I wasn't practicing law at the time, although I had my law degree um, already. And I sort of fled Boston to move home to the mountains of North Carolina, where I'd spent my summers. And I really think that I was, the rest of the year, I feel like I'm sort of held in abeyance. I'm really a summer creature. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of the year, I just wait for summer to come back. Um, it's when the fishing is best and when I enjoy camping the most. So it's interesting, you talked about my move from a metropolitan area like Chapel Hill. What you may not realize is that when I was a kid, Chapel Hill was rural. Chapel right. Hill was a tiny town when I was little. And as it changed um, in the 70s and 80s and really accelerated in the 1990s, I felt less at home there. And so I felt when I was moving to the mountains that I was trying to recapture some of what my childhood was like, which was playing in tobacco fields at the end of my road outside of Chapel Hill and canoeing on a lake that I grew up on. And as those things started to change and that tobacco farm at the end of my street became a subdivision, I felt a real sense of loss. But I realized that the mountains still had enough rural character and enough scenic beauty to feed me, I hoped for a lifetime. And then, of course, I've witnessed a lot of change in the mountains too, where um, change is very easy to see in the mountains because you have views for a very long yeah. way. So you can tell when the ridge lines are being developed and you can tell when a rock quarry mine moves into the closest ridge to your sacred place. Well, how do you feel the conservation movement can, can proceed forward in this political and judicial climate that we have today in North Carolina? Great question. So we are living in a different political climate than when the case took place. And luckily, I think land conservation is fairly nonpartisan. It's fairly um, appealing to conservatives, progressives, liberals, um, libertarians. The method that you use to conserve land is not, all those sides probably don't agree on the best way to do it necessarily or how to create the funding mechanisms. We live in a, a political climate that is constantly trying to put downward pressure on taxation and public investment. And I think we live in a time when a certain segment of the population has lost trust that governmental institutions are worthy of public investment. If you're in land conservation, you trust that, that the agencies established within the government can be good stewards of land that we're protecting. And I know a lot of the people in the agencies within the state and the federal system that are land managers and land stewards, and I have a lot of trust in them. They're very committed individuals. Sometimes they make decisions that, that I oppose, and I've even sued a state agency when they made a decision that I oppose. That's okay. In our system, that is not the end of the world for an agency to be sued by citizens. That is my speech right, um, and nobody at the agency that I sued was terribly offended that I filed a lawsuit. It wasn't in, you know, it wasn't, I'm not gonna say it was um, unicorns and butterflies and 
happy every day about it, but these are public servants that are, that are working in these agencies. I believe strongly that we need to have a system of taxation that enables us to support the public good. And what is more good and right and true than our future as a species, as healthy people, drinking clean water with places outdoor to connect to our natural state. Um, so it should be non-controversial. In large part, it's a lot less controversial than the regulatory side of the environmental question. Stream buffer regulations are very controversial. Fracking regulations are very controversial. I'm not involved in those right now. I'm involved in if we value a piece of land enough, we should have the public resources committed to buy it. Not using eminent domain, we should purchase it in the open marketplace. And that really does appeal to conservatives and progressives alike. Since the book was written, since all this has happened, President Obama last week issued the executive order about coal. But at this point, uh, mountaintop blowing isn't as prominent as it once was. It's, in fact, according to New York Times, it's it yeah. more or less extinct. What is the most dangerous environmental MO that we face in North Carolina? It's a really good question. I think the the sheer size of our population is an enormous stressor on our resources. And um, if you're drinking a glass of water that uh, in the eastern part of the state, downstream of the headwaters of where that water started, you're drinking water that has probably traveled through septic systems. The more people we have, the more people we have drinking water, the more people we have filling septic systems with waste, the more our water is going to become impaired. I think that is a paramount concern. I also think that while we are reducing our dependency on coal-fired power generation, all of the other ways that we generate energy have a carbon footprint as well. Manufacturing wind turbines does, manufacturing solar panels does, installing solar panels on the large scale on what was farmland has an environmental impact. So I think energy usage is a place that we need to really concentrate. NC State is doing an amazing job right now of reducing their carbon footprint by building energy efficient buildings that are LEED certified. The more efficiently we build in the places that we live and work, the more we can get the cheapest conservation dollar. It's cheaper than buying land, it's cheaper than um, creating a solar infrastructure for distribution. Conservation um, really takes the edge off of your carbon footprint and the more we can do that to reduce emissions, we will have gone a long way to address the part of challenge that's at least the low-hanging fruit. Eliza Eisenhart asks why the book is so important for NC State students. How do you think that your book is essential for incoming freshmen, and why is it relevant for them to read coming into NC State? A lot of freshmen in the student body at NC State are from North Carolina, and I was really honored that they chose the book, partly because I thought it would be a good fit, because while the book is set in North Carolina and a lot of the students here are from North Carolina, this is a part of North Carolina that not a lot of people are very familiar with. So it's a small subset of North Carolinians that have ever heard of Roan Mountain, that have ever heard of Hump Mountain, that have ever heard of Dogtown. So I really thought that um, I could expand students' knowledge of their own home state by having them exposed to this story I also think of it as a story about 
um, the wherewithal, the persistence, the tenacity of the families that were engaged in this battle, Ollie Cox and Ashley Cook and their family, I hope that that's inspiring to students who are facing challenges as they try to decide what to be when they grow up, um, what to do with the rest of their lives, how to spend their time productively while they're at NC State. And hopefully it inspires people that are facing challenges that they perceive as insurmountable. Maybe they're not so insurmountable. Maybe if you reach out in your community and you tap every resource that you have access to, you can accomplish more than you thought you might.